الله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين We begin as always with the praise of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and by sending peace and blessings upon his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and upon his family and his companions and then I would like to begin this course first of all by extending my thanks to the brothers and indeed the sisters uh, involved with Kalima who worked very very hard in order for this uh, conference, this seminar to go ahead and we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to place it on the scale of their good deeds on the Day of Judgment. And then I'd like to thank all of you, the brothers and the sisters who made such an effort to come here and to give your time. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that that effort that you have made is not lost and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grants us beneficial knowledge and benefits us with the knowledge that he teaches us and increases all of us in knowledge. There are just a couple of things that I would like to say by way of introduction and uh, I don't want to take long because one of the first things that I want to focus upon is that we have an absolutely huge amount of material and very very little time and I want to be clear from the outset that I don't think realistically that we are going to be able to finish all of the uh, the book that we've been asked to finish. I don't think that we'll be able to get through every single hadith. And when we were forming this course, the brothers at Kalima said, where shall we, you know, where shall we print the hadith up to? And my feeling is that it's better that you have uh, a booklet that is quite comprehensive. And then inshallah, if we get halfway through, or we get three quarters of the way through, or we get two thirds of the way through, it's better that you have all of the material there rather than for us to put 10 hadith or 15 hadith and then in the end have you writing the hadith with your own hands and I think like this is better so I want to make it clear and set the expectations from the beginning that I don't think we're going to over this two days finish every single hadith although it's possible what I do think we will do inshallah ta'ala is to give you a taste of this book and really it is only a taste. This only represents about a half of a single chapter of this book. It's very, very, very small amount compared to the actual book itself. But the idea behind this is to give you a taste of Sahih Muslim, something that you can go and you can read for yourselves and you will be able to have the tools to be able to understand what is going on and what is being said as you are reading insha'Allah ta'ala. So that's the first thing. Uh, I think it's, it's really exciting for me to be able to teach this particular topic because this is the topic that I specialized in in the Islamic University. And it's not so often that I get the opportunity to teach hadith because as you, some of you may be aware, I'm always around teaching all sorts of different subjects and all sorts of different things. And it's nice to be able to go back to what for me was uh, the main part of my Islamic education in the science of hadith, and particularly Sahih Muslim. And the reason why particularly Sahih Muslim is 
I had a very, a, a really wonderful teacher, Sheikh Abdullah ibn Atiq, Hafizahullah Ta'ala, uh, who taught me Sahih Muslim. And this was an amazing experience for me. And I want to share some of the benefits that he gave me with you. And indeed, some of the benefits that we took from our shuyukh, like a Sheikh Abdul Muhsin, Hafizahullah Ta'ala, and some of our other shuyukh who taught us this particular book. Now, because the time is short, I'm not going to waste a great deal of time with introductions. We're going to get right on into the actual topic. But before we begin with the workbook, we need to spend a few minutes to understand who Al-Imam Muslim was and what his book is. And that's because whenever you begin a book, you need to know a little bit about the author. Where did the author come from? What kind of time did the author live in? What kind of people did the author learn from? This is very important because it gives you a little bit of an understanding of the value of the book. You need to know what is good about Sahih Muslim. What might be difficult about Sahih Muslim for you to understand? What are the sort of areas you should be careful about? What are the sort of areas that you can benefit from? Why would you pull this book from your shelf and start reading it? And I think that's a very worthwhile beginning to make and it will help people to get into the topic so that you understand what this book is about and you understand where it fits into your life as a Muslim. And so we begin with a very brief biography of Al-Imam Muslim, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. So he is Abu Hussein Muslim Ibn Al-Hajjaj Ibn Muslim Al-Qushayri Al-Naysaburi. Abu Hussein Muslim Ibn Al-Hajjaj Ibn Muslim. From Qushayr in Naysabur. And one of the things that I think is the first thing to mention about this and something that you might notice is that Naysabur is not from the towns and cities of the Arabs. And this is true for the majority of the Qutb al-Sitta, the six books of Hadith. For the majority of the six books of Hadith, the people or the authors of those books were not from the towns, they were not from the, the Arab peoples and the, and the towns of the Arabs. And that tells you that Islam is not a religion that is restricted to one group of people. And that excelling in Islam does not mean you have to be born in Mecca or in Medina or in one of the, uh, you know, born to, to speak Arabic natively. It's not like that. You can excel in Islam. And indeed, there were people who excelled in the Arabic language from the great scholars of Arabic and the great scholars of Hadith and the great scholars of Islam who were not originally born to uh, speaking Arabic or within the, uh, the towns of the people who spoke Arabic. And so that gives a huge sort of inspiration to people to encourage you that at the end of the day, the opportunity is there for you. And the fact that maybe Arabic is not your first language, maybe the fact that you didn't, or you weren't born in an Arab country or to an Arab family, gives you, an op it's there, the opportunity is still there, as it was there for these great Imams in Islam. So he is from uh, Naysabur, uh, or uh, from uh, Qushayr in Naysabur which is in the area, generally, of 
Khurasan, which you're talking about the area of Persia and beyond. So you're talking about Persia and uh, beyond. This is the area of, uh, of uh, Naysabur and of Khushair, uh, from which uh, Imam Muslim came from. He was born, or, or before that, there is a discussion about whether he was really Khushairi or whether he was from those people who took the name. Now, what do we mean by this? What happened during the conquests is that people would be taken in during a battle, people would be taken in, and then they would adopt the tribal names of the people who took them in. And these are called Al-Mawali, or they have the name Mawla. So sometimes what you find is, you find someone being called Al-Qurashi Mawlahum, meaning that he was not really from Quraysh, but he was captured by Quraysh at war, or he was uh, taken in by Quraysh, and he adopted the tribal name. So they disagreed, was Al-Imam Muslim originally Khushayri from Naysabur, or was he taken in and uh, an Nawawi, rahimahullah ta'ala, and Ibn Salah and others, they said that he was originally from that particular area. And as for when he was born, he was born 204 years after the Hijrah. 204, and it said 206. 204, and it said 206. But Al-Imam al-Nawawi, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said that the correct one is 204 years after the Hijrah. So this gives you an idea about where he fits into the grand scheme of things. He's living in the golden age of Islam, after the age of the companions and the tabi'een, that golden age, and he's living at the golden age of hadith. He first studied from the scholars of his local area. And I think this is very important for all of us because this is how you learn Islam. You first study from the people you have access to. And some people get this a little bit wrong, even in our time, when they have in their mind that I need to go to this place, I need to travel to Medina, I need to go here to learn. You begin with what local resources you have, however great or however small those resources are, but you begin with the people locally, as an Imam Muslim did. And his first listening of hadith, the first time that he heard hadith, was at the, uh, in the year 218 when he was 12 years old. And this also tells you the value of a person beginning learning Islam at a young age. So his first official sitting where he memorized hadith and he transmitted them was at the age of 12 years old. In 218 uh, after the Hijrah. Or 14 years old, we say, according to when he was born. So we'll say 14 because we said that. 204 was the correct year that he was born. So he's 14 years old, the first time he hears a hadith. And this was from uh, one of his uh, uh, teachers, which we're going to hear about uh, in a moment. And what he did is, when he had heard hadith from all of his teachers that were local to him, he began to travel. And this was the way of the scholars of hadith. This is how the scholars of hadith used to be. They would begin in their local area, and then they would travel. 
And that's because you only have a limited number of people in your local area that you can benefit from. Even when you've learned everything that you can learn, you are limited as to how many you can benefit from. After that, there has to be traveling. And that shows the dedication they had to seeking knowledge in Islam. And the fact that it wasn't easy for them. It wasn't a matter of hopping on a plane. They would travel for months and months in the desert, in the difficult circumstances, in the heat, in the, all of the, 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 the troubles of traveling. And then they would travel for the sake of listening to one hadith or two hadith or three hadith. And then they would return back. And this is something that is fundamental, you see, from the life of Al-Imam Muslim. What is also very important to understand is the, the, the scholars that Imam Muslim studied under. Because this again puts it in sort of order. Now when it comes to the science of hadith, and when we talk about his scholars or his teachers, we don't necessarily mean the people who taught him how to pray, or the people who taught him uh, for example, the etiquettes of Islam. When we talk about a, some, a person's scholars in Islam, when we're talking about the science of hadith, we're talking about those people that he heard a hadith from and transmitted that hadith. Those are his scholars. The ones that he heard a hadith from and he transmitted a hadith from. So among those are Al-Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, so this again gives you a good understanding that Imam Ahmad, he heard a hadith from Imam Ahmad and he narrated a hadith from Imam Ahmad. Uh, from them were Muhammad ibn Ismail al-Bukhari, rahimahullah ta'ala. So al-Bukhari, the author of Sahih al-Bukhari, he also heard from him and he narrated a hadith from him. Uh, we'll mention something about it when we come to Sahih Muslim that there is a disagreement over whether or not he narrated from Al-Imam al-Bukhari in Sahih Muslim because there was an event that happened that caused some, uh, if you like, some sort of discord between some of the scholars at the time and that led to Al-Imam Muslim uh, not narrating from Al-Imam al-Bukhari in his Sahih. Uh, from his scholars was the first that he heard from Yahya ibn Yahya al-Tamimi and this was the first person that he heard from and there were many many others uh, from them included Ishaq ibn Rahawai who was the famous teacher of Imam al-Bukhari from them were uh, Ad-Darimi uh, who is uh, Abdullah ibn Abdurrahman Ad-Darimi who is a famous author of uh, the Sunan he has a book called Sunan Ad-Darimi and there were a number of other uh, Abu Bakr ibn Abi Shayba who also has a famous book uh, as well so he had a number of very, very prominent uh, scholars. And not only scholars, but he had a number of very prominent students. And from his very prominent students was Abu Isa Muhammad ibn Isa al-Tirmidhi. So the author of Jami' al-Tirmidhi was a student of Imam Muslim. And again, by student, we're not always imagining a little boy who sat at somebody's feet. We're imagining that he narrated a hadith from al-Imam Muslim. So when we talk about teachers and students in hadith, we're imagining a chain and we're imagining that there is somebody you narrate from and somebody you narrate to. Those who he narrated to are considered his students and those who he narrated from are considered to be his teachers. So at tirmidhi Ibn Khuzayma, you may have heard of, he has a famous book, 
uh, Abu Awana has also uh, a famous book. Uh, he had uh, a number of other famous uh, students from them. Abdurrahman ibn Abi Hatim al-Razi uh, and uh, Makki ibn Abdan and some of the other very famous scholars of hadith. As for what the, 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 the scholars of hadith said about him, I'll just read you a, a couple of statements that people said about him, just so that you can understand the level of al-Imam Muslim and where Imam Muslim was in terms of the, the scholars of Islam. Al-Khalili said about him, he is more famous than needing to mention his virtues. And I think all of us know this. And I think the testimony to this, or, or what is testament to this is, that when you all came here to study Sahih Muslim, all of you had heard of Sahih Muslim, and all of you had heard of Al-Imam Muslim. So he is more famous than needing to mention his virtues. That is how well known that he, he was. And uh, one of uh, Bandar, who's one of the famous, uh, or Bundar, one of the famous scholars of hadith, he said, the, the great memorizers in this world are four. There are four great memorizers in this world. And among them he counted Al-Imam Muslim. So he counted him as being from among the greatest people in memory, that had ever been known in terms of the science of hadith. And of course, Ibn Abi Hatim said about him that he was a reliable memorizer of hadith who had great knowledge of the science of hadith. And this is something that just gives you an idea of what he, uh, what he or who he was and what kind of status uh, he held. I think it's also important to talk about his belief. It's always important to know what perspective a person comes from or what sort of, sort of uh, belief a person holds. And the greatest testimony to the belief of Al-Imam Muslim is his book, Sahih Muslim. So in Sahih Muslim, just to cover a few things that you will find in Sahih Muslim, you'll find Kitab al-Iman. And in Kitab al-Iman, the book of faith, Al-Imam Muslim covers Iman as it was held by Ahlul Sunnah without falling into the mistakes that some people have in Iman. So we know some of the mistakes people have in Iman is that they reject that Iman goes up and down. But Al-Imam Muslim narrated that Iman goes up and down. Some people reject that actions have a part of Iman. But Imam Muslim narrated that actions are a part of Iman. Some people reject that Iman is different among the believers. But Imam Muslim narrated that Iman is different among the believers. This is what relates to Iman. We find that he has Kitabul Imara, the book of, the, of rulership, of ruling, of, of the Amir, and the, the one who is the Amir and the one who is being ruled. And in it again, he follows the belief of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah about obedience to the ruler. Where, even whether that is uh, obedience in good times or bad, whether that is obedience to one who is beloved to Allah or one is, who is not. So you find in Kitab al-Imara, he covers the belief of Ahl sunnah and he doesn't go to the belief of the Khawarij, those people who rebelled against uh, the ruler and rebelled against the command of the Prophet So you find in Kitab al-Imara, he explains the belief of Ahl sunnah you find that he has Kitab al-Qadr, 
when he explains the proper belief in Qadr and again you know there are people who f fell into misguidance when it comes to Qadr and so some of them uh, they went into saying that there is no decree and some of them they went into saying that that Allah to the extent that we are puppets and that we have no ability to choose right and wrong and that everything that we do is just simply staged and Al-Imam Muslim again refuted this one and he refuted that one and he narrated a hadith that show that we have free will but that our will is underneath the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that everything happens by the will of Allah and all of these things you keep going through every single area and every single division and every single part of Sahih Muslim you see that his belief was the belief of the people of the Sunnah there is one thing which we will come to insha'Allah ta'ala with regard to uh, Aqeedah and that is again the issue which happened between him and between Imam al-Bukhari with regard to the Quran and we will come to that, insha'Allah ta'ala, when we come to talk about the book of Sahih Muslim. He had a number of books that he authored. He didn't just write Sahih Muslim. He wrote a number of other books uh, related to the science of hadith, including a book called Al-Tabaqat and a book called Al-Asma wal-Kuna, Names and uh, Kunyas. Uh, he, he wrote a book called Su'alat uh, Al-Imam Ahmed, Questions on hadith that there was asked that were asked to Imam Ahmed. He wrote a book called Awham al-Muhaddithin mistakes that the scholars of hadith made and so on and so forth many books all of them in the science of hadith and an Imam Muslim passed away uh, in the year 261 after the Hijrah 261 and it was on the 25th of the month of Rajab and it is mentioned that the reason that he died was that he was in a gathering of remembrance of hadith. He was in a gathering of where people would mention a hadith to each other and would revise the hadith that they knew. And what happened was someone mentioned a hadith to an Imam Muslim that he had never heard before or he could not remember hearing before. It was one of his hadith. He had narrated it because they're revising his hadith. And he had never heard it, he couldn't remember hearing it. So he went into his room and he closed the door and he took his books and he began to go through his books looking for this hadith. And he was given a gift of a plate of dates. So he took the dates and he began eating the dates one after the other while he is going through looking, looking, looking for the hadith. And in the morning they found that he had passed away and he had passed away after finding the hadith. He had found the hadith and it is said that he passed away from date poisoning. So he had uh, become poisoned by some of the dates, had been bad and they had poisoned him and he passed away. But before he passed away, he found the hadith that he was looking for, rahimahullah ta'ala. So this is a very brief introduction to Al-Imam Muslim. We now need a very brief introduction to Sahih Muslim. The name of this book is Al-Musnad Al-Musnad Al-Sahih And the name Al-Musnad or the word Musnad refers to the fact that this is a collection of ahadith that have isnad They have chains of narration Just so we're all on the same page inshallah Let's have an understanding of how hadith works In a hadith you have two things 
you have the isnad and you have the matan. What is the isnad? The isnad is a chain of narrators. So-and-so told me that so-and-so told me that so-and-so told me that so-and-so told me, like steps. Each step is taking you closer to the Prophet It ends with the Prophet unless it is a hadith qudusi, in which case it ends with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it ends with the Prophet or if it's a hadith qudusi, it ends with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this uh, is the chain of narration. The text is the actual thing that was said. The Prophet said, Ibn Umar said, Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu said, so-and-so said, Ali ibn Abi Talib said. After this, this comes the text. So when Imam Muslim mentions these ahadith, he doesn't mention them without chains of narration. Every single hadith has a chain of narration, and those chains of narration lead to the Prophet وسلم, or to one of the companions or to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the case of the hadith Qudusi. And the shortest chain that an Imam Muslim has is four people, i.e., four people between him and reaching the Prophet. That is the shortest chain that an Imam Muslim has. So that gives you an idea of how close Al-Imam Muslim was to the Prophet that you would find a hadith in which there are only four steps between him and between the Prophet and that is the shortest chain of narration in Sahih Muslim there are at his time shorter narrations uh, there are narrations of three people but they're not found in Sahih Muslim so in Sahih Muslim, the shortest is four. So he's living at a time where the shortest possible way of reaching the Prophet ﷺ is three people. That's the shortest that exists. And he manages to do it authentically within four. As for this book, Sahih Muslim, he began with an introduction in which he explained his methodology in writing the book but there are just a couple of things from the introduction I want to pick out I don't want to pick a great deal first of all that he chose the ahadith that are authentic and all of the hadith in Sahih Muslim in general are authentic and I say the words in general because if we're being very specific there are one or two hadith that have some questions over a word here a word there a narrator here a narrator there Somewhere in the region of 70 or so, perhaps a little more, a little less. There are a number of ahadith that have, you know, there is a question over this word here, this word there. But as a general understanding, every single hadith in Sahih Muslim is authentic. And the ummah as a whole have accepted every single hadith in Sahih Muslim. So you can be confident when you read Sahih Muslim, that everything you are reading in this book was said by the Prophet ﷺ with very, very few exceptions. And those exceptions are not in the sense of the general hadith, which is authentic, but in the sense of individual words that people disagree about, or it shouldn't have been this word, it should have been this word, or this narrator, not this narrator. Very small things, but the actual hadith itself, there is no disagreement that every single hadith 
in this book is authentic. So he chose and he was very careful. One thing that, he, that, that Sahih Muslim stands out for amongst all of the other books is the order of the hadith. If you read Sahih al-Bukhari, the order is everywhere. You find the same hadith repeated in the book of Hajj, in the book of Zakah, in the book of marriage, in the book of uh, Tafsir, in the book of, you know, you find it all over the place. As for Sahih Muslim, the ordering of Sahih Muslim is the best ordering of any of the books of hadith. In the sense that every hadith that is similar is put together and the, the hadith are ordered very, very, very sensibly and very easy in a very easy to understand way. They're ordered according to the uh, abwab uh, fiqhiyya, the books, the, 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 the books of uh, fiqh in, and indeed the general books of hadith because Sahih Muslim has more than just fiqh in it, more than just rulings of halal and haram. But there is, a, there is an order that the scholars generally use in terms of uh, the, the, the basic uh, sort of order of uh, hadith that is used and he sticks to that. Uh, and of course, he is very careful about the words that he chose. So two things that make Sahih Muslim stand out. One is the order, that it's very well ordered. All of the ahadith that are on a similar topic are together. In Sahih al-Bukhari, you can find a hadith on the first page, the fifth page, the 25th page, the 200th page, all over the place. And there's a reason for that. But in Sahih Muslim, if you're looking for a hadith, all of the similar hadith are on the same page. The second thing that makes Sahih Muslim stand out among all of the other books of hadith is the, is the caution that Imam Muslim used in choosing the words. Most of Sahih al-Bukhari is narrated from memory. The memory of Imam al-Bukhari. He simply memorized and later on he would write. Imam Muslim wrote Sahih Muslim with his books in front of him. I.e. he copied down the words word for word. And that means that in terms of accuracy, Sahih Muslim in terms of wording is more accurate than Sahih al-Bukhari. In terms of the wording in it. Not necessarily in terms of the authenticity because al-Bukhari is a little stricter than, than Muslim in his authenticity. But in terms of the wording, and that is why whenever you see the scholars of hadith, if the hadith is in Sahih Muslim, they will quote it from Sahih Muslim. Even if it's also in Bukhari, in Tirmidhi, in Abu Dawood, they will quote it first of all from Sahih Muslim. Because the wording of Sahih Muslim is more accurate than the other books of hadith. Because Al-Imam Muslim wrote the book while he was sat down at his, you know, sort of uh, with his books in front of him, copying the words down. And that means that in terms of accuracy, it is closer and it is more accurate in terms of wording than the other books of hadith. Now that doesn't mean that that's always the case, but as a general sort of rule, Sahih Muslim is the one you want to quote from if you're quoting, if you find the hadith is present in many books, quote the hadith from Sahih Muslim, because generally the wording is more accurate. In terms of the conditions of authenticity, Al-Imam Muslim stuck to the general belief of the scholars of hadith and the general principles with regard to authenticity of the hadith and he had a very strict criteria for hadith to be included in his book although the one thing we want to point out here is that it wasn't quite as strict as al-Bukhari 
And that is why from the point of view of authenticity, Al-Bukhari is more authentic. From the point of view of the wording and the accuracy of the wording, Muslim is better. So you have a reason for each one. But one of the great things to start with, of starting with Sahih Muslim, is that it's one of the easiest books for people to approach. Because it's ordered very nicely, and because all of the hadith are in one place, and it's easy for you to find a hadith because everything is in a nice structured order. This is something that, you know, it makes it very easy for ordinary people to be able to access the book. And it's more accessible than Sahih al-Bukhari. It's easier to understand than Sahih al-Bukhari. One more thing I want to mention about Sahih Muslim, which I think is extremely important, is that Al-Imam Muslim did not write any chapter headings. Now you'll notice in your book that you have chapter headings. They are in the, the larger font. So if we see, for example, chapter 1, explanation of Al-Iman, Al-Islam, and Al-Ihsan, this is not from Al-Imam Muslim. This is from Al-Imam Al-Nawawi, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. Al-Imam Muslim, he simply wrote, Kitabul Iman, Bismillah, and then Haddathana, so-and-so informed us that so-and-so informed us that so-and-so informed us. So he simply wrote Kitab al-Iman Haddathana Yahya ibn Yahya Taymi qala Haddathana And all the way through He did not write this uh, title This was written by Al-Imam Al-Nawawi Rahimahullah Ta'ala As uh, for the number of the Ahadith You have uh, a couple of numbers here The number of the Ahadith in general Without repetition Without repetition included So the unique hadith is around about 4,000 or so If we want to be more specific Muhammad Fuad Abdul Baqi Counted them to be 3,033 Some of the scholars said 4,000 It depends on what you consider to be repetition With repetition You're talking about approximately 12 Thousand hadith, i.e., the total number of hadith one, two, three, four, five. If you count them, you're talking about somewhere around twelve thousand hadith. However, when you look at the ones that are simply just repeated with different wordings and you take them out, you're looking at somewhere around four thousand. And if you go by the counting of Muhammad for Adab al Baqi, which is quite well known as being the most famous numbering of Sahih Muslim, then the numbers come to about just a little bit over three thousand hadith. Sahih Muslim has a number of works that have been done in terms of summaries of Sahih Muslim. The most famous uh, copy of Sahih Muslim in the English language is probably the translation of Dar as-Salam. However, the, 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 the main translation of Dar as-Salam, you should be aware, the one that is most commonly sold is a summary. And it's not the full copy of Sahih Muslim. So it doesn't have every single hadith in it. And the reason I tell you about that is perhaps one of you would go and say, okay, the hadith is in Sahih Muslim. And you open up the book and you open it up and you don't find the hadith. That might be because you're reading a summary of Sahih Muslim. However, as far as I'm aware, Dar es Salaam do have a full version of Sahih Muslim uh, along with all of the rest of the six books of hadith. They have a full version of Sahih Muslim. And this is something that people have, but it's a much larger, a much larger book. The two-volume one that they sell with the sandy-colored cover is uh, only a summary, 
in which many of the repetition is taken, much of the repetition is taken out, and also some of the other ahadith are taken out as well. So there are a lot of summaries of Sahih Muslim, there are a lot of explanations. The most important explanation of Sahih Muslim is the explanation of Al-Imam Al-Nawawi uh, Rahimahullah Ta'ala which is called Al-Minhaj Sharhi Sahih Muslim Ibn Al-Hajjaj and this is the most important explanation of Sahih Muslim it's not the only one but it's the one that is the most well known and the one that is referred to the most so very often you know whenever you hear about Sahih Al-Bukhari you always hear about Al-Hafid Ibn Hajar because Al-Hafid Ibn Hajar has the most ex famous explanation of Sahih al-Bukhari in Fath al-Bari. And you always hear Al-Hafid Ibn Hajar said, Al-Hafid Ibn Hajar said. Whenever it comes to Sahih Muslim, you always hear An-Nawawi, An-Nawawi, An-Nawawi. Because An-Nawawi has the most famous explanation of, uh, of Sahih uh, Muslim. And there are some contemporary explanations of Sahih Muslim as well, uh, which are available. But again, in the English language, there is relatively little by way of explanation of uh, Sahih Muslim. We mentioned that there are uh, a number of ahadith in Sahih Muslim that were criticized. No book is perfect except for the book of Allah Azza wa Jal. And I want you to understand this because many people become confused. They speak to a scholar of hadith and the scholar of hadith says no book is perfect except for the book of Allah. Then they speak to a scholar of fiqh and they tell them everything in Sahih Muslim is authentic the answer is between the two we said that in general every single hadith is authentic however there are certain criticisms no book after the book of Allah is free of criticism but the criticism is not in the whole hadith like that this entire hadith is not right or this entire hadith is weak it's in individual narrators or individual wordings you shouldn't have used this word here you shouldn't have used this word there but none of the ones that we're going to study have any of the, that criticism in, and it's very minor in reality for you it doesn't really change anything because the reality is the hadith is authentic and this is a, a question over you know you're talking about somewhere a little bit less than a hundred hadith in a, a total of, and I'm talking about with repetition, so in a total of 12,000, to have 100 out of 12,000 is a pretty accurate book. Al-Imam al-Bukhari is even less than that. Out of all of his ahadith, Al-Hafid ibn Hajar said, the truth is with those who criticized in six. So they said, out of all of the thousands of hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari, six of them have a criticism over them. As for Al-Imam Muslim, the number is a little bit higher between 50 and 100 have some sort of valid you know, criticism over them but this criticism is not in the hadith in general it's in specific words, specific phrases, specific orders should this come first or that come first very minor things, the actual hadith themselves, every single one of them is authentic and the last thing that I want to mention before we start the actual hadith is to talk a little bit about what happened between Imam al-Bukhari and Imam Muslim and this is quite Interesting because Al-Imam al-Bukhari was obviously a teacher of Al-Imam Muslim. What do we mean by a teacher? Not that he taught him the prayer or he taught him the Hajj, but that he he narrated a hadith that Al-Imam Muslim would uh, listen to. And along with Al-Imam al-Bukhari was another very famous teacher of Al-Imam Muslim called Al-Duhari. And Al-Duhari and Al-Imam al-Bukhari had a bit of a, a tiff, 
a little bit of an argument between them. Because of something that was narrated from Imam al-Bukhari and taken out of context. Now you all know that what we believe about the Qur'an is that the Qur'an is the speech of Allah and it is uncreated in every form. And that was the belief of Imam al-Bukhari and Imam Muslim. However, something was narrated from Imam al-Bukhari, they tried to say something to him to trick him. And they were living at this time when there was a lot of debate and a lot of, uh, a lot of disagreement over certain issues. And there was a lot of trials and tribulations regarding the Qur'an. And there were some people who came and they said, and they came that they said the Quran is created. When we believe that the Quran is the speech of Allah, and so what happened was, Al Imam Al Bukhari was asked repeated questions that were intended just to trip him up, and he answered correctly. However, some of the things he said were misconstrued, and it was taken to Al Duhali. And when it was repeated, and you know how people do, they go and take something and they repeat it to Al Duhali. Al Duhali became very angry and he refused to narrate from Al-Imam al-Bukhari. When Al-Imam Muslim heard this, he stood up and he left the sitting of Al-Duhali and he refused to listen to, to narrate from either of them. So he supported Al-Imam al-Bukhari by saying this is not true, how can you say this about him? And he left. But then in his Sahih, he didn't narrate from either of them. Even though the two of them were great scholars in Islam and they were well known for their following of the Sunnah and both of them gave the correct answer in this regard but some of the students were passing things around. So what he did, he refused to narrate from either of them. But there's an interesting point when he narrates from uh, a person who seems to be Al-Imam Al-Bukhari in his Sahih. And there's a little bit of a debate whether he narrated from him once or twice in a hidden way without mentioning his full name. And it's possible because you know people have similar names. You, you get Muhammad ibn Ismail from different people. And there's, a, there's one or two places in Sahih Muslim where the scholars say that perhaps he did narrate one or two hadith from Imam al-Bukhari in there. But in general what he did is he kept a principle that I will not narrate from either of them. He had the respect for Al-Duhali because he was defending the Sunnah but he, he didn't want to narrate from him because he thought evil of Imam al-Bukhari and he had that respect for Imam al-Bukhari but again what was narrated the students were saying things so he simply washed his hands of the whole thing and said I'm not going to narrate from him and I'm not going to narrate from him despite the fact that he continued to defend Imam al-Bukhari and there's no doubt that what Imam al-Bukhari said was completely correct however the students Again, as they do until today, went spreading things between each other and saying things and spreading rumors and saying he said this and he said that, and they managed to cause some kind of enmity between Al Imam Al Zuhari and Al Imam Al Bukhari, rahimahumullahu ta'ala. So, this gives us a little bit of an understanding of uh, Sahih Muslim and a little bit of an understanding of Al Imam Muslim himself. Kitabul Iman. This title, Kitabul Iman, the Book of Iman comes from Al-Imam Muslim. So this title, Kitab al-Iman, comes from Imam Muslim. It doesn't come from Imam al-Nawawi. The ones that say Kitab, they come from Imam Muslim. And Al-Iman, in the Arabic language, is more than just believing in something. And those scholars who said that Iman is simply to believe in something, they were wrong in Arabic and they were wrong in Islam. Iman is more than belief. 
And for those of you who know Arabic, Iman is more than Tasdiq. And those people who said that Iman is Tasdiq, they were wrong in Arabic and they were wrong in Islam. Iman is more than just believing something to be true. Much more than that. It is the belief that something is true that is followed or that is affirmed by action. And this is true in the language of the Arabs and it is true in Islam as well. And one of the reasons I highlight this is those people who took actions outside of Iman from the Murji'ah, who are those people who said that actions have no part of Iman, they did so based on a misunderstanding not only in Islam but in the Arabic language. And they said that Iman just means to believe something is true. And that's not true. Iman is much more than that. It has a degree of certainty in it. It has a degree of, uh, of, of being firm and of having conviction more than just belief. The conviction to act upon the belief that you have. This is all part of the meaning of Iman in the language of, of the Arabs before we even get to the Islamic meaning whatsoever. And the be- one of the best explanations of this is from Al-Raghib Al-Asfahani, uh, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, who was a great scholar of the Arabic language, who clarified that Iman is more than, in Arabic, is more than just believing something to be true. It is that belief which is followed by the conviction of doing something about it. And so that is something about the, the understanding of Iman. As for Iman in the belief of Ahlul Sunnah, Iman compromises or, or Iman is comprised or composed of five things. Iman is composed of five things. All of these five things are a part of Iman. And all of these five things you will find in our explanation and this explanation of Sahih Muslim. The first of them are the statements of the heart. So we're just going to write these five down and then we're going to explain them. The statements of the heart. The actions of the heart. The statements of the tongue, the actions of the tongue, and the actions of the limbs. All of these are Iman in Islam. So we said, the statements of the heart, the actions of the heart, the statements of the tongue, the actions of the tongue, and the actions of the limbs, all of these are Iman. What do we mean by the statements of the heart? The statements of the heart are the beliefs that you hold to be true. So the statements of the heart are those beliefs, those things you believe and you hold to be true in your heart in affirmation of the truth of Allah and His Messenger So they are those things that you hold to be true in your heart with certainty based on you affirming the truth of Allah and His Messenger And from them are the, the, the pillars of Iman and so on and so forth that we're going to talk about. But that is only one part in five parts of Iman. And that is why it's so strange to find many people restricting Iman to this. 
when there are four whole other bits to Iman that don't come into this. The second is actions of the heart, and they are those actions that you do that are actions, but they are done by the heart, like love and fear and hope and trust and reliance. All of these are actions of the heart, your love of Allah, your fear of Allah, your hope in Allah, your trust in Allah, your reliance in Allah. All of these are actions that your heart does. Your hope in Allah is not an action that you do with your hands. Your trust in Allah is not an action you do with your lips. Your fear of Allah is not an action that you do by, with your limbs. These are things that you do with your heart. But they're actions, they're not beliefs. You don't believe, it's not, you're not talking about you believe that Allah deserves to be loved. You actually love Allah. That's an action that you do with your heart and it's a part of your iman. Then there, are the sta- then there is the statement of the tongue. And the statement of the tongue is what the tongue says in affirmation of the statement of the heart. I.e. what the tongue says to confirm what the heart believes. I.e. your statement, La ilaha illallah, Muhammadur Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. This is something you say with your tongue to affirm the belief that you hold in your heart. And that is a part of your iman. And that is why when the Prophet ﷺ was asked about the highest level of iman, he said, La ilaha illallah. Notice that he described the highest level of iman as being saying, La ilaha illallah. The statement of the tongue. And what did he describe as being the smallest or the lowest level of Iman? Moving something harmful out of the road. And that's an action that you do with your limbs and we're going to come to that. So the, act, the statement of the tongue is that statement you make to affirm the belief you have in your heart. La ilaha illallah, Muhammadur Rasulullah. The actions of the tongue are those actions that you only do with your tongue. Such as the dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Remembering Allah, saying a good word, uh, you know, speaking good, in, encouraging people to do good, commanding good and forbidding evil that you do with your tongue, that this, these are the actions of the tongue. The recitation of the Qur'an, and so on and so forth. And then the actions of the limbs, which are the physical actions you do. And so your prayer is iman. Your remembrance of Allah is Iman. Your recitation of the Qur'an is Iman. Your love of Allah is Iman. Your belief in Allah is Iman. Your saying La ilaha illallah is Iman. All of these things are part of your Iman. And when you read Kitab al-Iman in Sahih Muslim, this becomes very, very clear. And so we need to understand that some of the scholars in Islam, they summarize these five by saying Al-Iman in Islam is statement and action. Statement of the heart, action of the heart, statement of the tongue, action of the tongue, and action of the limbs. is statement and action. It increases and it decreases. It increases and it decreases. What causes your Iman to increase is your obedience to Allah. Every action that you do that is obedience to Allah makes your iman increase. What causes your iman to decrease? Disobedience of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, being disobedient towards Allah, 
causes your iman to decrease. So iman is statement and action. It increases with obedience and it decreases with disobedience. And we said that the breakdown of this is to break down the actions into all of those different parts. And there's no doubt when you understand that Iman is more than just what you believe, it's very clear that people have a different people have different levels of Iman. And even in their belief in Allah, even in just the issue of belief, people have different levels of Iman. Not everyone's belief is the same. Your belief is not the same as the belief of Abu Bakr. Nor is Abu Bakr's Iman the same as the Iman of Umar. Nor is the Iman of the Prophet wasallam the same as the Iman of Abu Bakr. Iman is not a light switch you switch on or off. It's a dimmer switch that gets brighter and it gets dimmer. It goes up and it goes down. It can go up to the point of completion and it can go down to the point where it doesn't exist at all. So it can go up to the point where it is complete as in the hadith many men have completed their Iman and it can go down to the point where it doesn't exist at all. This is probably the most important stuff that we need to talk about in the topic of Iman. We, are, we need to talk about one more thing and that is to talk about the difference between Islam and Iman but we're going to leave that inshallah ta'ala for the first hadith bi'idhnillah. So we come to the very first uh, hadith in Kitab al-Iman which al-Imam Nawawi gave the heading, the explanation of Iman, Islam and Ihsan and the obligation to affirm the Qadr, i.e. the decree of Allah with regard to Iman and the explanation of the evidence that declares one's innocence from the one who does not believe in Qadr and holding a harsh view of this person. So this is all the uh, title that Imam al-Nawawi gave to this hadith, and we'll cover that later, we'll come back to it inshallah when we've read the hadith. So it is narrated on the authority of Yahya ibn Ya'mur that the first man who spoke about Qadr in Basra was Ma'bad al-Juhani. So up to here. It was narrated on the authority of Yahya ibn Ya'mur. Actually, Imam Muslim has a long chain of hadith. He says, Haddathana Abu Khaytham, Zuhair ibn Harb, Qala Haddathana Waqi' and Kahmas, and Abdullah ibn Burayda, and Yahya ibn Ya'mur, and then he narrates another hadith. One thing I want to tell you about the chain of narration here is that when you're reading the chain of narration, Every now and again, you'll see a ha, the letter ha, you'll see, like alhamdulillah, you'll see the letter ha. And I don't know what they put it in, in English, because I don't think they translated the chains of narration when they translated the book. But in case you come across it, what it means is that al-imam Muslim is narrating the same hadith from multiple chains. Ha means tahwila. It's like a diversion. He's taking you from one chain to another chain. So he's saying, I have this hadith 
through this chain and I have this hadith through another chain. And I'm just mentioning that because you may wonder what these letter ha are that pop up all the way throughout the chains. It means that he's switching to another chain to tell you that he has this hadith from more than one road. It's like you can come into Dubai from this road or from that road. He has more than one road. So he's saying, right, take a diversion, swap over to the other road. I have it from the other way as well. So he narrates from a number of, uh, of, uh, of people. Uh, from them, uh, he narrates from Zuhair ibn Harb, uh, from Waqi' and Kahmas, and Abdullah ibn Burayda, and Yahya ibn Ya'mur. This hadith concludes or finishes with Yahya ibn Ya'mur, who narrates the hadith. And Yahya ibn Ya'mur is a tabi'i. He is not from the companions. He's a tabi'i who narrates this hadith from uh, Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu anhumah who narrates it from his father Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu ta'ala an. And we'll talk about that in a moment. So Yahya ibn Ya'mur sets the scene. And he tells us that the first man who discussed about Qadr. What does he mean discussed about Qadr? He doesn't mean the first man to explain Qadr or the first man to teach Qadr. But he means the first man to speak about it in an innovative way. To go into deviancy in the matter of Qadr. Now we have to talk about Qadr very quickly. Qadr is very, very, very simple. But it can be extremely complicated. It's complicated when you go beyond what Allah Azza wa has allowed you to go and it's easy when you stick to what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has commanded you to stick to. So we're just going to go over so we understand. Because there's no use as having Arabic words that we don't understand properly. We have to understand what these words mean. What does Qadr mean? Qadr, it means four things. Four simple stages. If you believe in these four, you believe in Qadr. And it's very, very, very simple. Four stages and we'll... We'll add a couple of points to them as well. Number one, that Allah knows everything. Allah knows everything in the past. Allah knows everything in the present. Allah knows everything in the future. Allah even knows the impossible, how it would be if it happened, and what would happen if the impossible happened. Every single thing about it, Allah knows. And the evidence that Allah knows even the impossible is that Allah tells us in the Qur'an what would happen if there was a God besides Allah. And if Allah knows what would happen if there was a God besides Allah, then Allah knows the impossible. Because it's impossible for there to be a God besides Allah. But even though it's impossible, Allah knows what would happen if it happened. So Allah's knowledge is absolutely infinite. That's the first point. And usually up to here, everyone's fine. It's like, yeah, I can handle this. Allah knows everything, yeah, no problem. Allah Azza wa Jal, point number two, has written everything down that will happen or has commanded everything that will happen to be written down in a book called the Lawh al-Mahfuf. Again, that's actually not difficult to understand if you base it on the first step. If Allah knows everything, why is it difficult for Allah to write down what he knows, it's not difficult. If you know the answer to something, it's not difficult for you to write it down. Nothing is difficult for Allah. It's not, like Allah said in the Quran, this is not difficult, it's not aziz for Allah, it's not hard for Allah to do. 
Because if Allah knows everything, it's not difficult for Him to write everything. However, it's very critical at this point that you understand that we do not have access to this writing in its co- and, nor do, and nor do any of the angels have access to it in its complete form. The angels are given little pieces, the prophets are given little pieces, other than that, only Allah knows. And that saves you from the issue of, well, what's the point in me doing anything because everything is written down? You don't know what's been written for you, so work for what you want. And Allah will make it easy for you. The third point is that nothing happens in this universe without the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That Allah wills everything. There is no action, there is no movement, there is no existence, there is no creation. Nothing happens in this universe without the will of Allah. And again, the confusion here for most people happens because they confuse what Allah wills and what Allah loves. And those two are completely separate things. There are things that Allah loves and things that Allah wills. As for the things that Allah wills, Allah wills things that He loves and things that He doesn't love. Allah does not love you to disbelieve in Him, but He wills for disbelief to happen. Allah does not love for people to kill each other, but He wills for killing to happen. So there's a difference between what Allah loves and what Allah wills. As for what Allah wills, it happens. As for what Allah loves, He may choose for it to happen, and He may not choose for it to happen. So now the burning question comes, why would Allah allow something to happen that He does not love? And the answer to that is that Allah has infinite wisdom. And every single thing that Allah allows to happen, He allows to happen for a wisdom and for a reason. And so Allah does not create pure evil for evil's sake. Allah does not create pure evil for the sake of evil. Allah allows evil to happen and creates it for a purpose, whether we know that purpose or not. And sometimes we can understand the purpose, and sometimes we can't understand the purpose. But Allah knows the purpose. Every single thing that happens has a purpose. And from this, Ibn Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala mentions a beautiful, at the beginning of Zad al-Ma'ad, as far as I remember, he mentions a beautiful description of the wisdom in Adam being thrown out of paradise. And the wisdom in Iblis. And he mentions tens and tens of points of wisdom in the creation of Iblis. Huge number of benefits to the, to the, to the, to the creation of Iblis. And that we wouldn't have known Allah's mercy And we wouldn't have known Allah's help If it wasn't for the fact that Allah had created an enemy by, by Or through which we come to know The mercy of Allah and the help of Allah And that's just one example But otherwise there are millions and millions of reasons That we can't even comprehend And you know this because when something bad happens to you You think, oh it's terrible, it's terrible, it's terrible Six months down the line you say You know that bad thing that happened to me It was the best thing that ever happened to me How many people in this room became Muslim Because of a bad thing that happened Or started practicing Islam Because of a bad thing that happened to them They thought it was the worst thing that could ever happen And it took them to Islam 
So don't think that Allah doesn't, everything, every single thing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala creates has a wisdom. And the fourth point is that nothing exists without being created by Allah. Nothing exists without being created by Allah. So nothing escapes Allah's knowledge and writing and will and creation. Now as for this hadith, what we need to understand what we need to understand is that there are two types of misguidance in Qadr. There are two types of misguidance, two extremes. In one extreme, there are a people who say that there is no Qadr. There is no decree. Allah does not know what will happen tomorrow. Allah has not written what will happen. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not will things to happen. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has not created them to happen. And these people are called the Qadariyya. This particular sect are called the Qadariyya. And in opposition to them is a sect called the Jabariyya. And they went to the other extreme. That there is no free will. You have no choice. You are simply like, you know, a, a, a pawn that Allah creates for the purpose of putting into the hellfire. And so they denied the justice of Allah. They denied the wisdom of Allah. And they said that, no, you have, you know, you are born to go to the hellfire. You're born to go to Jannah. And Allah Azza wa randomly picked you're in the hellfire, you're in Jannah, you're in the hellfire, you're in Jannah. Didn't care whether you were sincere, whether you were not sincere, whether you had a good heart or a bad heart. Allah Azza wa Jal created you just to go to Jahannam. Ta'ala Allahu amma yaquluna uluwan kabira. High is Allah above the lies that they attribute to Him. Both of them. One of them, they said that Allah is ignorant and He doesn't know what happens tomorrow. The other one said that Allah Azza wa Jal is unjust. And he randomly puts people in the hellfire and puts people into paradise. Neither of these are true. The truth is in the middle. And that is that we have a free will. Allah has given us the choice to do good or to do bad. And we only have that because Allah gave it to us. Otherwise Allah could put us wherever he wants. But Allah gave us that choice. However, we cannot exercise that will without the will of Allah. And this is beautifully explained in the Quran. لِمَن شَاءَ مِنْكُمْ أَن يَسْتَقِيمْ وَمَا تَشَاءُونَ إِلَّا إِنْ يَشَاءَ اللَّهُ رَبُّ الْعَالَمِينَ For those among you who wish to stand firm upon Islam, I, Allah is attributing to you an ability, a mashia, a will, that you have a will to be able to try and be a good Muslim. But you won't be able to be a good Muslim unless Allah helps you to be a good Muslim. You won't be able to do it without Allah's help. Now, now comes the key question. Who does Allah help? Allah helps those people who strive and those people who try. So if you strive hard and work hard and try hard, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will never let your deeds go. He will keep on guiding you and helping you and allowing you to make the choices that you make. 
As for those people who say, I can make a choice and Allah has to accept it, then this doesn't make any sense. Are you able to defeat Allah? You wanted to go to Jannah and Allah wanted you to go to the hellfire, so you said, stop, O oh Allah, I'm going to Jannah? Of course not. And on the other side, those people who said Allah has condemned you to the hellfire even though you pray five times a day and you're doing everything you can and you make dua to Allah in the night, Allah has condemned you to the hellfire. This is not a just God. This is an unjust God. Rather, Allah has promised to help you to make the right choices if you work hard. And you can't make those choices without the help of Allah. And I'll give you a simple example. The other week, I was reflecting upon the Qur'an and thinking, you know, I need to work on reading a bit more Qur'an in the day. So I made an intention, I'm going to read a certain portion of the Qur'an every single day. And for the first three days, I read it. On the fourth day, I had the same intention. Today, I'm going to read this portion of the Qur'an. But I didn't read it. What was the problem? I had the, the will, I, I made the decision, I made a choice, I'm going to read the Qur'an today, but I didn't read it. I willed and Allah willed, but the will of Allah was different to what I willed. I willed to read it and Allah didn't will for me to read it, for a wisdom that is with Him subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's not for me to ask, why did He not, was it because of a mistake I made, was it because He wanted me to do so? It's not for me to ask that. He didn't will for it to happen. And all of you experience that every day. Today I'm going to get to work five minutes early. Traffic comes, you get there late. You willed and Allah willed. It's very simple. However, Allah has promised that He will guide and will help those people who strive. So the Prophet ﷺ was asked, O Messenger of Allah, they heard about Qadr. And you know, after all of this explanation of Qadr, should we not just sit back? Should we not just sit back and you know, put our feet up and say... That's it, you know, whichever of us is going to Jannah is going to Jannah. The Prophet ﷺ said, no, for each of you will be made easy for him what he was created for. I.e., if you work hard, Allah ﷺ will help you to make the choices that will make you from the people of paradise. And if you're lazy, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will allow you to make the choices that will make you from the people of the hellfire. So if you work hard, you will achieve paradise that is with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Allah will help you towards that. And someone will say, well how? Because it's already written. But Allah already knows that you're going to work hard or you're not going to work hard. All of it is decreed by Allah. You can't escape that. But as long as you don't know what it is, work hard and you will be from the people of Jannah and don't think that Allah will ever leave you or that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will ever abandon you. If you work hard, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will help you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will guide you to what is right. And at the end of the day, everything is in the hands of Allah. So, this Ma'bad al-Juhani who was in Basra, what does it mean that he discussed about Qadr? This is explained later in the hadith that he said that there is no Qadr. So he was from the Qadariya. He was the, he was the first person in Basra which is in Iraq, the first person in Basra to speak and say that there is no Qadr. And again, usually, why do people say there is no Qadr? Usually because they didn't understand what we just explained. So, for example, they said, but I don't understand. 
How can Allah allow evil to happen? It must be that Allah doesn't know that evil is going to happen. Say, no, Allah has a wisdom behind the evil that He allows to happen. And you can see that wisdom in your own life. And Ibn al-Qayyim gave a beautiful example. He said, the example of a child who needs to have their leg amputated. The example of a child who has gangrene in their leg and they need to have their leg amputated. From the point of view of the child, that doctor has done nothing but evil. From the point of view of the child, the, the child sees, I had a leg and now I don't have a leg. From the point of view of the parent and the doctor, they know that they saved that child's life by taking their leg. The child doesn't have the ability, the mental ability, to be able to understand that what was done to them was done for a good wisdom. Now, if this is something that is true between human beings, Allah has the highest example. If this is true for human beings, that some of you might see something and you can't see the wisdom, like when you're young and your parents say you have to study and you know don't go out and don't mess around and you think, why are they saying this to me? They're just evil, they don't want good for me. And then you get to their age and you realize the wisdom behind what they did. This is human beings. So how about Allah Azza wa Jal? Every single thing that Allah has is a wisdom. But these people, they came along and Ma'bad al-Juhani was one of the first people and the first one in Basra to say that there is no Qadr. And so Yahya ibn Ya'mur went along with Humayd ibn Abdurrahman al-Himyari. Both of them are major scholars of hadith. Yahya ibn Ya'mur and Humayd ibn Abdurrahman al-Himyari set out for pilgrimage awful Umrah. This word awful Umrah is a doubt from one of the narrators before Yahya. It's a doubt from one of the narrators before Yahya. Not that Yahya couldn't remember whether it was Hajj or Umrah, because clearly Yahya knew whether it was Hajj or Umrah. But that one of the narrators who came after Yahya, Kahmas, Waqi'ah, uh, Zuhair uh, Abu Khaytham Zuhair ibn Harb one of them doubted as to whether Yahya said Hajj or Umrah and this shows you the extreme precision of the scholars of Hadith and this on its own is enough of an evidence that the Hadith were recorded authentically because you can see even down to the most minute detail they wouldn't say, oh, well, it doesn't matter if it was Hajj or Umrah. I'll say Hajj and, you know, I'll say Umrah and, you know, that people will understand. He said Hajj or Umrah. I.e. that the narrator couldn't remember whether he said Hajj or whether he said Umrah. And so he said I, Hajj first, i.e. he thinks it's Hajj, but it might, he might have said Umrah. And said, should it so happen that we come into contact with one of the companions of the messenger, of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and we shall ask him about what is said about the taqdeer, about qadr. And we will, we will ask him about what is talked, what is said about taqdeer, what is said about qadr. Look at the methodology of the tabi'in and implement this methodology in your life. They heard some people talking about something they weren't sure about. Talking about something that didn't sound right to them. 
didn't sound like it was it what it made sense. What the first thing they did is to go and find a person of knowledge that we can ask. One of the companions of the Messenger وسلم, so that we can ask. Now don't think that they don't have an opinion. They know that it's wrong. Because they're saying the first person to say this about Qadr. But they want to ask the scholars of Islam. They want to attach themselves to the scholars of Islam and to benefit from them. So they go and they go for Hajj or for Umrah hoping that they're going to be able to find one of the companions. Now the one word I want you to cross out in the text is the word accidentally. Cross it out. First of all, it's a bad translation of the Arabic and it's also a bad translation of Qadr because we're talking about Qadr and then he says accidentally we came across Abdullah ibn Umar. It's, not, it's a bad translation. And the translation here is just taken from the standard. I told the brothers just to take it from the standard. Uh, either they took it from the Dar es Salaam translation or one of the standard translations. But the Arabic here is that Allah Azza wa Jal gave us the ability to meet Abdullah ibn Umar. That you would say something like we were blessed or we were, um, we were given the, the ability to come across Abdullah ibn Umar ibn al-Khattab. It doesn't mean like we, we came across... I mean, accidentally you can see what they mean. They mean that they didn't plan, they didn't go out looking for Abdullah ibn Umar. But Allah Azza wa Jal blessed them with the ability to come across Abdullah ibn Umar ibn al-Khattab while he was entering the mosque. Me and my companions surrounded him. One of us stood on his right and the other stood on his left. I expected that my companion would authorize me to speak. Again, note the manners here. Note the manners, note the etiquettes. Then I said, O Abu Abdurrahman. Abu Abdurrahman is Abdullah ibn Umar. O Abu Abdurrahman, there have appeared some people in our land who recite the Qur'an and they pursue knowledge. And then after mentioning about their affairs added, they claim there is no such thing as the divine decree and events are not predestined. This is an explanation of the earlier sentence that he was the first to speak about Qadr. I.e. was the first person to say that there is no Qadr. So the foundation of the Qadriyyah. And this tells us that the sect of the Qadriyyah existed and sectarianism and innovation existed during the life of the companions, radiallahu anhum. Abdullah ibn Umar is still alive. He, Abdullah ibn Umar, said, When you meet such people, tell them that I have nothing to do with them and they have nothing to do with me. And they are in no way responsible for my belief. Abdullah ibn Umar swore by Allah and said, If any one of them had with him gold equal to the mountain of Uhud, and then he spent it in the way of Allah, Allah would not accept it until he affirmed his faith in the divine decree. Up to here is the fatwa of Abdullah ibn Umar. So they came for a fatwa from Abdullah ibn Umar. They came for a fatwa. They told him, note, they told him the full description. They didn't say there's an evil man who's appeared among us, an innovator. What do you say about him or Abdullah ibn Umar? They didn't give him the answer. They said, there, is, there are people. They recite the Qur'an. They learn knowledge. 
But they say that there is no Qadr. They gave a balanced explanation of who these people were. What did the first thing Abdullah ibn Umar did is to declare himself free of them. And if you go back to the title of Imam al-Nawawi, declaring one's innocence from the one who does not believe in al-Qadr. And this means that they disassociate themselves. And this is al-Wala wal-Bara. And it's a very important part of Islam. That you disassociate yourself from those people who hold these kinds of beliefs. That you have a disassociation with them. That we've cut off from you. You and, we are, you and I, we're not on the same page. You don't believe in Qatar, I believe in Qatar, I cut off. So they cut off from them. So until this part here, we have the fatwa of Abdullah bin Umar. He says that if you were to give spend the entire amount of Uhud in gold, it would not be accepted until you believe in Qadr. But now we're going to see a very important etiquette of the Mufti. And that is the Mufti, when he gives a fatwa, he gives you the evidence. And Abdullah ibn Umar doesn't just quote them one line. It's enough for him to say, that you have to believe in Qadr. He could just give this one line. But he gives the whole hadith as a benefit for them. So this whole hadith, and you can see it takes up, you know, I mean, it takes up a whole, you know, I mean, a good, more than half of a page of our notes. And he gives this whole hadith as a proof for the fatwa that he gave. He gave a fatwa that you will not be, you know, if you spent the whole of the mountain of Uhud in gold, it wouldn't be accepted from you. And then he gave the evidence for the fatwa. And the evidence is this. That my father Umar ibn al-Khattab told me And this includes some of the companions narrating from others And this is how the companions used to be They used to narrate from each other Abdullah ibn Umar wasn't present in the explanation or in the time of this hadith However, his father was present and his father narrated to him He said, my father Umar ibn al-Khattab told me one day we were sitting in the company of Allah's Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam when there appeared before us a man dressed in pure white clothes, his hair extraordinarily black. There were no signs of travel on him and none among us recognized him. Up to here, what is the purpose of all of that? The purpose of this is to gain the attention of the companions. Because you're living in a little village a little town in the middle of the desert with no real access except by long travel. You know, you're talking about a long, long travel from the coast, a long travel from Mecca, or a long travel from Tabuk, or a long travel from, you know, the area which is now sort of uh, Qasim or somewhere like that. You're talking about a significant number of days travel to get to the nearest town. And yet this person appears with a white, white thaw and jet black hair. Now that's a person who looks like they just came out of their house five minutes ago. Thaw is brand new, white as white. Their hair is jet black, there's no sand in their hair. They don't see any sign of traveling on this individual. He looks strange, he looks very well kept, very well presented. And yet nobody knows who he is. He doesn't come from Medina, because in Medina everybody knows everybody. He doesn't come from Medina. He didn't come from outside of Medina. He doesn't look like a traveler, but he can't have stayed in Medina the night. So who is he? The purpose is to gain the attention. 
And then he came and sat with the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He knelt before him and placed his palms on his thighs, i.e. the man placed his own hands on his own thighs. I, you know when you sit, like when you sit for the tashahud, this is how he sat. When you sit for the tashahud, something like this, on his knees, putting his knees against the knees of the Prophet and putting his own hands on his own thighs. And he said, Oh Muhammad, tell me about Islam. So up to here, there's no evidence that the Prophet knows who this individual is. There's a man, he looks very strange. The companions have all gone silent. You know when someone walks into the room who is, looks a little bit strange and the whole room just goes silent. I know this because I wear my film in England and you know, sometimes you walk into a shop or a, you know, into the market and you know, you're in the middle, and especially in northern England where there isn't that, that many Muslims, and you walk in your sob and your hat and the whole place just goes quiet. You can hear a pin drop. So this is the purpose of, of the description of this man. It is in order to gain the attention of the companions. Everyone is listening. Tell me about Islam. So the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, Islam is that you testify that there is no God worthy of worship except Allah and that Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is the Messenger of Allah. And you establish the prayer and pay the zakah and you observe the fast of Ramadan and you perform pilgrimage to the house if you are able to do so. And again, uh, the translator has kind of uh, been a little bit generous with the uh, Arabic in translating the meaning rather than the words. The words say if you're able to do so. If you're able to do so. And it doesn't mention being solvent enough or being able to bear the expense. It means if you're able to do so. At this point, the inquirer said, you have told the truth. Umar ibn Khattab said, it amazed us that he would put the question and he himself would give the answer or would approve of the answer. Generally, when you ask a question, it's because you don't know the answer. So again, something very strange, that the person is asking a question that he clearly already knows the answer to. And it's as though he is giving a test to the Prophet ﷺ. And from this you can see the patience of the Prophet ﷺ in dealing with difficult situations. He doesn't know. Someone's come to him who's asking him a question and is verifying, you know, is, is uh, almost giving him a test and saying, yes, you're right. Next question. It's like he's giving him an exam. And he doesn't know who it is. And then the questioner continues. Tell me about Iman. The Prophet ﷺ said that you believe in Allah, in his angels, in his books, his apostles, in the day of judgment, and you believe in the divine decree, the good of it, and the bad. The inquirer said, you've told the truth. So he again said, tell me about Ihsan. Tell me about Ihsan. He said that you worship Allah as though you see him, and even though you don't see him, he sees you. Then the inquirer said, tell me about the hour. The Prophet ﷺ replied, 
the one who is asked knows no more than the one who is asking about it. He said, tell me some of its signs. He said that the slave girl will give birth to her mistress and that you will find barefooted destitute goat or destitute shepherds vying with one another in the construction of magnificent buildings. And Umar uh, ibn al-Khattab said, then the inquirer went on his way, but I stayed for a while. In some of the narrations it's mentioned that Umar remained for three days before the Prophet ﷺ told him who the questioner was. And in other narrations it indicates the Prophet ﷺ told who the questioner was immediately, but Umar wasn't present and it was a number of days before Umar heard who the questioner was. And then the Prophet ﷺ said to Umar, do you know who the questioner was? He said, Allah and his messenger know best, which shows the etiquette of Umar in not guessing, but in referring back the knowledge to Allah Azza wa Jal, the Prophet ﷺ said, this was Jibreel, he came to you in order to teach you your religion. He came to you in order to teach you the matters of your religion. And in the narration of Imam Muslim here, أَتَاكُمْ يُعَلِّمُكُمْ دِينَكُمْ he came to you to teach you your religion. And that shows you the importance of this hadith. Now, as I understand it, you guys have already been over this hadith a number of uh, times. So I'm not going to spend a, an age on it. I wanted to talk about Qadr at the beginning. And I want to talk about certain aspects of it. And just go over so that we're all on the same page, inshallah. First of all, what is the difference between Islam and Iman? This is important because we're talking about Kitab al-Iman. So Islam and Iman are two words. If they come together, they go apart. And if they go apart, they come together. What does that mean? Two words. When they come together, they go apart. And when they go apart, they come together. What this means is that when you find Islam and Iman together in the same sentence or the same paragraph, then the two have different meanings. So when they come together, the meanings go apart. When you find the words mentioned separately, they mean the same thing. So Iman and Islam mean the same thing when they are mentioned separately, when they are mentioned together in the same sentence or the same paragraph, they mean something different. So for example, if I said that we sitting here today are gathered here with our Muslim brothers and sisters, or I said we are gathered here today with our believing brothers and sisters, there's no difference between these two things. Islam and Iman mean the same thing. But if I say, among us today are Muslims and among us are believers. So now I've made a difference between the two. So when they are in the same sentence or in the same paragraph, they mean something different. When they are separate, you can use them interchangeably. So what about the difference between them? Here they come together in the same sort of uh, paragraph or the same uh, context they come together. So what is the difference between them? 
there are two real differences between them, or two ways of explaining the difference between them. In this hadith, Islam is used to explain the outward actions. And Iman is used to explain the inner actions. Now that's not to say that Iman doesn't include the outer actions, because we said these two words, they include each other. But in this hadith, when you mention them together, Islam is explained as being the outward actions. La ilaha illallah, Muhammadur Rasulullah, performing the prayer and giving the zakah and etc. etc. The outward actions. And Iman is explained as being the inner actions. Those things that are matters of the heart. That is one way of differing between them. There is another way which involves Iman, Islam, Iman and Ihsan. And that is to say that Islam refers to those basic deeds that keep you as a Muslim. I Islam being the lowest level. Those basic deeds that keep you as a Muslim. Like saying La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah and the prayer, etc. Iman refers to doing what Allah told you and avoiding what Allah made haram for you. So Iman refers to the middle level, which is that you do what you're told and you avoid what you're told not to go, not to do. And Ihsan refers to doing the optional deeds. So you have three levels of people. You have the Muslim, who is basically just doing enough to remain within the religion. And you have the Mu'min, who is doing everything they are told to do and avoiding everything they're told to avoid as much as they're able to do. And you have the Muhsin, who is the one who is doing extra deeds on top of the obligatory. So the Muslim is the one praying the five daily prayers and says, La ilaha illallah, but maybe is doing some haram, has some major sins. The mu'min is the one that doesn't have the major sins, or, or if they have them, they repent from them immediately, and they do all of their you know, things that they're supposed to do, all of their outward actions they're supposed to do. And the muhsin is the one who does the voluntary deeds. That's one way. But this hadith doesn't explain it like this. This hadith looks at it from a different angle. It looks at Islam as being the outer actions and Iman as being the inner actions. But remember, when the word Iman comes on its own, it encompasses the outer actions and the inner actions. But in this hadith, separating between them and Ihsan as being the... Um, it says here the performance of good deeds, but being to do with uh, reaching a, a level of consciousness of Allah where you are aware of Allah and aware that Allah is watching you and your deeds reflect that consciousness of Allah that you have. A brief word about uh, being able to do the Hajj. Ability to do the Hajj means two things for a man and three things for a woman. Two things for a man and three things 
for a woman. For a man, it means financial ability and it also means the safety of the road. So you should be able to reach Makkah safely without being fear of being attacked or you know, being uh, kidnapped. And you should have the financial ability to do so. For a woman, it means those conditions and the presence of a mahram who is willing to take it. Because it's not permissible for a woman to travel without a mahram. It's not permissible for a woman who believes in Allah in the last day to travel anywhere without a mahram. As the Prophet said. So, for a man, it means safety of the road and the financial ability. For a woman, it means safety of the road and financial ability and the presence of a mahram. And that's why the translation here is incorrect. Because the translator has focused on only one aspect when the Arabic is the one who is able to do so. The one who is able to do so. And ability means different things for different people, means two things for a man and three things for a woman. However, you'll note that Abdullah ibn Umar mentioned this entire hadith because of the line and you believe in the divine decree, the good of it and the bad. You believe in the divine decree, the good of it and the bad. And that is why Abdullah ibn Umar mentioned this entire hadith. So all of this was mentioned for the sake of that one line. And that is again showing you the etiquette of giving the fatawa, that he gave the entire evidence for the sake of one line in it, that he was able to prove that you have to believe in the existence of Qadr from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa sahbihi wa sallam.